the dig on venture capital is that it's completely zero sum. There are only 10 good deals per decade. And like somebody's going to do one of those 10 good deals. And like, you're just basically shuffling around which firm does one of those 10 deals. I was like, wow, that's really depressing. But actually, like when you're in this, like it's like, well, you know, that's like saying like only one team is going to win the Super Bowl every year. So you might as well not play football. It's like the game itself is fun. We're excited for this episode of the IO podcast. Welcome, everyone. Uh, Alex Rampell is our guest today. He is the general partner at Andreessen Horowitz and has been a repeat founder. Probably his biggest success was at a company called Trial Pay. Uh, we're stoked because he is a great operator and a great investor with a lot of expertise in fintech specifically and uh, has been a part of, by the way, he's the co-founder of a firm. I missed that. I was going to say, you know, with the trial pays, like trial pays awesome. A firm's pretty, pretty great. Yeah. So it's a fun conversation. We think you'll enjoy it. And thanks for tuning in. For those who aren't as familiar with Alex Rampell, can you tell us a little bit about your story, maybe starting back at trial pay and kind of how that thing got started? We'd love to hear that. Yeah, I mean, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to start even before then, because that's how trial pay got started. But it was basically when I was a little kid, um, I used to write what is what was known as shareware. So there were two forms of software. There was shrink wrapped software. I have to explain this to like 25 year olds now. They have no idea what I'm talking about. But like you'd go to a store and you'd buy a piece of software at the store and it came in a box and the box had shrink wrap around it. That's why it's called shrink wrapped. And it had CD ROMs or floppy disks in it. And that was one way that you bought software. But software, it's like, you know, why can't you just share the software with your friend? And then uh, if the friend wants to pay for it separately, like he or she could pay for it separately. And that was called shareware. So you were, in, you were supposed to share, whereas every single piece of shrink wrap software had FBI piracy notice on it. Don't share this. Uh, and shareware was basically more or less on the honor system. It's like, hey, if you like this product, please pay for it. But in many cases, it was actually the early stage of freemium products or freemium software. And freemium is obviously a, a you know, dominant way of getting consumers to pay for things today. But back then, it was kind of anomalous. So um, when I was 10 years old, this is, um, I was born in 1981. So this was 1991. Um, I wrote a, uh, a screensaver, uh, if you remember what those were, like you know, things that would draw ovals or, yeah. you know, uh, stars or you know, flying toasters on your screen. So I, I made one that drew ovals on your screen. It was very, very stupid, but I, I made it. Um, I uploaded it to AOL, CompuServe, all of these different bulletin boards. There was no internet back then, or not really. And I said, if you like this, please send $5 to Precocious Software. So that was my vocab word for the week. It's like I had to learn what <laughs> Precocious was. Send $5 to Precocious Software. Here's my address in Florida. And then like a few days later, I got a $5 check in the mail. So that's pretty cool. Um, and I sent them like a customized uh, screensaver that made the ovals yellow or something. I forgot what it was. And then a few days after that, I got a $20 check in the mail. Somebody bought four copies. And the reason why I'm telling you this story in reference to how I started trial pay was um, I did this throughout basically, you know, fifth grade on. I had this little shareware business that made like $100 a week. Um, and I would upload. I, I, made, I had all these different little utilities. It's like one would um, show like the prices of stocks on the bottom of your screen. I had one that would um, uh, change the volume of your computer very easily. If you hit control seven, it made the volume max. If you hit control one, it made it low. I mean, all these like little like utility tools. Um, and, uh, you know, I was making like a hundred dollars a week and it was all checks in the mail. Um, and uh, I wrote this one program in 1996 called uh, Always Online. 
Um, and if you ever used AOL, which was kind of the de facto internet for most Americans in like the mid nineties, AOL used to charge you $3 an hour. Then they switched to charging you $20 a month, flat rate, all you can eat. And the laws of supply and demand being what they are, people would stay on AOL forever. Uh, they would never get off. And then all of the, all the modems were busy. You could never connect to AOL, even though you were paying for it. And I was running my little $100 a week, little share business off of, uh, off of AOL. So I wrote a program called Always Online. It would keep you online forever, and it would dial each number a thousand times in a row. And if you didn't have Always Online, you could never connect. Um, and this thing, like, I mean, it, it sold like a hundred thousand copies. It was nuts. So I was 15 years old, um, and I went to a boarding school called Andover in Andover, Massachusetts, or Phillips Academy. And I got more mail in one day than the rest of the school combined. Like, literally, I mean, it was like there were like 1,200 students, and I would get more mail than everybody else. And it was all checks in the mail. Um, and, uh, but the, which was amazing. That's how I got into payments because it's like, it was checks in the mail. How do I get credit cards? So actually I bought a credit card terminal on something called auction web, which became eBay. I figured out how to process credit cards. I, um, I got a, a merchant account back in 1997, um, for processing credit cards online, which the bank, it was called nation's bank, which many, many mergers later became a uh, bank of America. They had no idea what I was doing or what I was like. I, I probably could have gone to jail for like claiming that I was, I was selling things in like an office, but actually I was selling things on the internet, but I did that. Um, but most people do not pay for software. This is, this is kind of what I'm getting to with this long-winded intro is that people are willing to pay for uh, a Coca-Cola. Uh, they're willing to pay for a glass of wine. They're willing to pay for a pizza. Like you, you don't expect to get a pizza for free. You, you might want a pizza for free, but you're not expecting to go search on Google for free pizza. Whereas if there is a piece of software, like, you know, there's a flashlight app for the iPhone that comes out. You're like, I don't want to pay for the flashlight app. I'm going to look for a free one. And you'll spend five hours looking for a free one. Um, you don't want to pay $20 for an iTunes song. Uh, that's ridiculous. That's a ripoff. Even if, if it's your favorite song, you want to get it for free. And it just turns out that consumers are willing to pay for tangible goods much more than they are willing to pay for intangible goods. And I was a software company or software writer, uh, software engineer. And most people like, yeah, always online sold a ton of copies. That was awesome. My other software was doing very, very well. That was awesome. But the vast majority, probably 98% of people using the product did not pay for it. And that eventually became the idea behind trial pay of if you don't want to pay me, cool. Will you pay for Netflix? Uh, will you pay for Geico? Like you got to get car insurance. You don't care if you get progressive or Geico, go pay for Geico and they'll pay me a giant commission which by the way is probably 50 times the price that I could ever charge for my product. Like you're going to buy flowers for your mom for Mother's Day. The gross margin on flowers is like 99%. They literally grow in the ground. Um, you don't care where you buy the flowers from. Go buy the flowers from FTD. They'll pay me a $20 cost per acquisition fee. Um, and uh, I'll give you my product for free. So, but that was many years later. So I, I had my little share business. Um, went to college, uh, studied math and computer science, but I kept doing my little share business there. So I never actually had a job. I just kept doing the share. Like I graduated and all of my friends like were trying to get jobs at various places. And I was like, I'm just gonna work for myself. And people thought I was nuts. This was like, nobody did internet stuff back then. And I remember this, there was one guy who was like, you do the internet? Like the internet died because I, you know, I graduated in 2003 and the internet was like a big deal in like 99 and 2000. And then we had this, like, you know, anybody who lived through the 2021 crash, like that pales in comparison to the 2001 crash. Um, and uh, I, but I was making a lot of money on the internet in 2003. So I never got a job. I just kind of kept doing that. I met this guy, Chris Dixon, um, who was at Harvard Business School when I was at Harvard College. 
And he also thought the internet was not a terrible idea. So we cooked up, uh, and we, we were like, because like, we got introduced because there was a mutual friend who's like, you're crazy. I have another crazy friend. You crazy people should go to like a crazy place together. And we, we had a coffee at Aubon Pan, this like coffee shop in, in Cambridge. And we cooked up, uh, we, we, we built a little shareware product together called, did they read it? And then we started, um, a venture back company together called site advisor, which we sold to McAfee. But even for site advisor, most people didn't want to pay for the product. They just wanted to get it for free. Um, and that's where, like for my shareware, I was saying, Hey, get it for free. If you sign up for Netflix or sign up for Geico was doing that for set advisor. And, you know, we kind of got lucky with the, uh, set advisor exit, sold that to McAfee about a year later. And I'm like, wow, this like little get it for free thing is a pretty good idea. I should start a business around that. So I kind of like, you know, sold off my various shareware products, um, raised some venture capital from, uh, battery ventures and index ventures and, and started trial pit. Got it fascinating story. I, I, uh, I'm trying to, to see if we can pull out the lessons from that. I mean, obviously you had stumbled almost upon some desperation of people who are willing to send you checks in the mail and product market fit. And maybe the right, the right way to weave together the lessons would be to have us maybe tell us the story of a firm too. And then we can try and find together what these startups have in common that you've, that you've kind of done and how you find product market fit of those two things. Can you talk about the Affirm story and how you got yeah. to know Max, how that worked out? Yeah, what I was saying is like at trial pay, it was a good idea, but part of what we did wrong was it could be used almost in too many places. And you go sign up, like I remember one of our first big clients was Skype at trial pay. And we're like, hey, everybody wants Skype credits, but nobody wants to pay for them. So that would be awesome. And then Skype's like, okay, we'll sign the contract. And then Skype sent an email to like 2000 people saying, Hey, you could get Skype credits for free. Use trial pay. And like five people opened the email, like one person did it. And then Skype was like, oh yeah, we tried trial pay. It didn't work. We're like, no, 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 no. Like, like you did it the wrong way. Like, don't do that. Like put it here. Like, yeah, we already tried it here. It doesn't work over there. And like, that was a big, big learning is that you actually have, this is the point of product marketing is you have to be prescriptive around here's how you use it. And here are the 10 different ways that you should use the product. So I love that. And, and on a smaller scale, I think Tyler and I got to see a little bit of that at Divi where it's like, hey, just getting somebody to sign up and like adjudicating some credit actually had little to no bearing on how much revenue we were going to make because usage wasn't like, so how do we, how do we get you to use this in the right way so that we maximize kind of the, the revenue per, per customer and how do you figure that out? And then you can build a model and then scale it. How did you get from, from like starting when you were 10, you know, you're, you're building stuff, right? And then, you know, all the way, all the way up to co-founding a firm. And then how did you get into the investing world and what was that transition like? So the, the way that I got into the investing world was I was, it was two things. Like, um, I was like a guest writer for TechCrunch because I became friendly with this guy, Michael Arrington, who started TechCrunch, um, back when TechCrunch was good, I want to add, uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but Arrington's awesome. And he was like, he, he was like the judge, jury, and, you know, uh, executor of like our executor of, of, of all things like startup dumb in like, from like, I don't know, 2004 to 2012, like he was like the most important person in Silicon Valley. So I, I started writing for TechCrunch uh, just around like different trends that I saw. And, um, you know, one of them, because at you know, trial pay, we had, we had, we had publishers and advertisers or, you know, kind of merchants who were selling things and then advertisers where you could get the thing for free if you engage with the advertiser. 
And um, I had this belief that like there needed to be things that you would effectively buy offline, sorry, buy online and redeem offline. Because there were only two forms of e-commerce. There was stuff in a box that got shipped to you. And that's like things like Amazon. And then there was travel where you buy the ticket online you then show, you print the ticket out before the, you know, iPhone days, you print the ticket out, you'd show it to the person at the airport and then they let you on the plane. Like that was the other form of commerce. Like you print something out and then they let you in. Um, and I just thought like there was going to be this world where you could buy a lot of things online that you redeem offline. And I called that online to offline or O to O. So I wrote this piece, I want to say in like 2010. Um, and uh, I, had, I had met uh, this guy, Andrew Mason, who had started Groupon when Groupon was like, 10 people or nine people. It was actually called uh, thepoint.com. It was, wasn't even called Groupon yet. Um, I met this guy uh, from China who started Meituan, which is now like a $200 billion company or something crazy like that. But but they, they all were these O to O companies. And like, it was kind of cool. It's like, I wrote the piece about this. I had like this, this belief in like, this is where the world was going. And then all these founders wanted to talk to me and I was lucky enough to invest in some of them. So I was like, I, I liked investing because it's kind of like, you know, all these problems that I had at trial pay that I learned from, it's like, I finally learned what to do, but uh, it's almost like frustrating if you can't help somebody else because you already made the mistake. You've already paid for your own mistake, but like, can you use that pain from your own mistake to like help somebody else? So I, I kind of like that. I'd probably invest in a few dozen companies and um, kind of uh, particularly around, like, I, I like to come up with a thesis and then have kind of like people that, you know, also believe in the thesis, just meet with them and like, you know, talk to them. That, that was for, for me. Some people like going to the movies. I like doing that. So that, that was that. And then uh, th there were these three companies that I had started kind of actually contemporaneous with trial pay. One was Affirm, um, TXN, and uh, Point. The common investor in all three was Andreessen Horowitz because I brought all three of those deals to Andreessen Horowitz, uh, to, to Jeff Jordan and Chris Dixon. So uh, when Visa bought trial pay in 2014, and I wasn't really doing that much at Visa, um, you know, love, love the company, but it's somewhat of a, uh, you know, monopoly is a bad word, but uh, very good business. So like, you don't actually have to work that hard to like make the business run because it's such a good business. That, that's the term that I'll use. So, you know, I, I was spending a lot of time on these other three companies, um, still spending time like investing. And then, um, uh, you know, Mark, Ben, Chris, and Jeff were like, hey, why don't, you, why don't you come here and do the thing that you were doing as a hobby full time? And you get to like, because I kind of felt bad whenever I'd like go do work on point at Visa because it's like, oh, I'm supposed to be working at Visa. Whereas like if I'm at Andreessen Horowitz and I'm supposed to be investing and these are three companies within the portfolio, then I'm doing my own job. Yeah, makes, makes a ton of sense. So that's how I ended up uh, as an investor. I'd say a few things. I mean, number one is, I mean, like the, I, I have a whole like memo that I wrote internally for like, how do we invest in, in companies when you're really just investing in people? And the best entrepreneurs can, uh, I, I call it like materialized labor, capital, and, and, and customers. And what does that mean? It's like, okay, you start a company, you need to convince five people to go like quit their higher paying jobs because it should be higher paying jobs than what you're paying as a startup, hopefully, if you're uh, prudent with your cash, quit their higher paying jobs and work for you. Like that's really hard. Um, how do you get, comp how do you get like investors to trust you? And that's really hard. And like the, the biggest, like when I invest, it's like, okay, I'm investing in round N and I should always invest in round N if I feel very confident there is a round N plus one. If I'm very, very antsy about there being a round N plus one, I should never invest in round N. But as you can see, this is kind of a recursive problem. You need to convince everybody that there will be a round N plus one. Um, and then, you know, how do you get your first five customers? And I think the commonality for all of these things is that I like to think about like process interrupt 
for almost all jobs. And like process is like, what do I do like as a background process? Like I, I do this every day, a, a little bit of something every day. And then interrupt is like, I wasn't planning on this, but like this, like, Ooh, I have to pitch this customer because now they're willing to switch from their current like provider. Um, and a lot of the process, I feel like that is important for entrepreneurs. It all kind of goes into this theme of never giving up, which is by far the most important thing. Like if you can only have one piece of advice for an entrepreneur, it's like, just never give up. Um, but with a asterisk of know when to give up on the thing that you're trying right now and try something else. But it all is in this, this while loop of never give up. The while loop is never give up, but like you want to give up on like these individual if statements that you're, you might be trying. Um, but it's like the background process is like, you know, we had a rule at trial pay. Every customer has to, every customer, prospective customer has to hear from us once a month, every time, right? Because if they don't hear from you once a month and like, they might be like finally ready to buy whatever it is that you want to sell 300 days later, but they haven't heard from you in 300 days. Like they have no idea who you are. And if they hear from you every day, they think that you're a psychopath and they never want to talk to you again. So like, there's this right cadence. And by the way, that's, that's true for talent. So like at, at trial pay, like we had this thing um, that we call the tortilla warmer where uh, the tortilla warmer was like, here's a candidate that doesn't want to work here, but we really want them. So we throw them on the tortilla warmer. And uh, I mean, metaphorically speaking, we don't actually put humans in tortilla warmers. And then we will ping them uh, like once a month saying like, hey, how are you doing? Come to this happy hour or whatever. Um, customers, like here's a prospect. Like, and I, I, I was the most dogged person. I drove a lot of people crazy, I'm sure. But it's like, I want these people to buy my product and they will hear from me once a month, but they will hear from me in a different way once a month. Like it's a newsletter. It's a, you know, we, we did something that I like to call 3d marketing. They get a gift package from us, um, custom curated gift pa package, you know, every December. And like, one of the things that we did was we always sent people a plant is my theory is that like, you feel really bad about yourself for throwing away a plant. Um, and the plant would be a cactus because you can't kill a cactus. Um, and then it would be in a pot that said trial pit. Right. So it's like, you know, things like this, where it's just, it's never giving up and having a process by which you have these like long-term objectives that you're trying to meet. And you can't just be transactional and show up the day before and expect to accomplish anything, either for hiring people, for like, if you're going to raise money from an investor, you can't just like show up the day, you, you show up the day before if your metrics are insane, right? But most companies, you need to have a pre-existing relationship with that investor. And that's built over years. Yeah. Um, how do you do that? And how do you do that systematically and almost programmatically? And I think these are some of the most important things for entrepreneurs to do. I mean, obviously you need people to, you need product market fit. You need people to want to buy your product, but there is, it's not just like the best product wins. You need to have a process by which investors want to fund you. People want to go work for you and customers know your name. And that is a process more than an interrupt. Like you should be open to interrupts, but like the process needs to be solid and that's probably the, the best advice that I'd give. I mean, there, there are other, you know, we talked about other threads, like, you know, how do you sell your company? How do you deal with these impossible situations where you can't raise money because your sales have gone down and the only way to get them up is to raise money, but you can't get, you can't raise money unless your sales go up. Like we can talk about this maybe on, on part two, but, um, but I, I think, you know, persistence and intelligent persistence around the process is really the, the advice that I would give. You were talking about this internal, I think you said a memo or, or a framework that you use on what makes a great entrepreneur. They're, 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 they're rallying around the resources, the people, and the money in order to build a startup. Yeah, Can you I mean, talk about this? Is it a paper? What it, is it? And it it's, it's a memo. It's, yeah. it's an innocuous little memo. Um, but basically, I was trying to figure out what makes for, a, for an entrepreneur. Um, 
And if you don't have that much to go on, how, how do you get there? And I, I don't know if I kind of walked you through, I, I stole this from another investor, but like there are kind of four types of entrepreneurs. Then I'll get to the memo. Like there, there's the freshman, the sophomore, the junior, the senior. The freshmen are people that know nothing. I mean, it, it's the, I mean, this is obviously a college metaphor, but somebody who knows very little is hopefully very smart. And the fact that they know very little can often be a weapon. Like if you are very naive, like the founders of Stripe, I mean, John and Patrick, I met them when they were just starting Stripe. I think Patrick, I mean, they were like 17 and 19 or something, or maybe even younger than that. They dropped out of MIT and Harvard, respectively. And um, they, they would kind of qualify as freshmen. They had never done, I mean, they had started actually another, another business, small business before, but these weren't like seasoned, you know, financial gurus that had studied business and gotten an MBA or something like that. Then, then there were the sophomores who... Um, kind of think of the cream of the crop, like went to Yale, Phi Beta Kappa, then worked at McKinsey, um, then worked at a storied private equity firm. And then now they're like the hotshot product manager at Google. Junior is that person who's now been promoted. Now they're a VP at Google. They run a giant organization, very, very well respected, very well compensated. A senior is somebody who has already started a company before and is now doing it again. And if you actually look at the distribution of returns for most venture firms, they're like the biggest outcomes of all time. They're almost entirely freshmen and seniors. Like the, the sophomore and juniors are not represented at all. I mean, you have a few exceptions. Like I guess, um, you know, Kevin Systrom would have been a, a sophomore in this framework. Um, and Instagram obviously was a hit. Uh, but, but by and large, um, you have seniors. And the reason why seniors are so successful is obviously they have a lot of learned experience. But this goes back to the memo. If, um, if you snap your fingers and you've started a company and made lots of people a lot of money and people respect you, they want to go work for you again. And by the way, people want to give you capital again. Yeah. And by the way, customers that trusted you last time that uh, you built a product out of thin air for, they want to trust you again. So, I mean, think about like Dave Duffield, who started PeopleSoft. Starts PeopleSoft, um, goes public, hostile takeover by Oracle didn't want to sell the business and you know guess who built workday it was yeah. dave duffield and again that was i'm sure that was very hard to build but um capital labor customers are the three key ingredients and then there's also just kind of the reason why the person is doing it and just how deep is their knowledge which i think kind of goes back to the freshman sophomore thing as well because a lot of people it's like all right i worked at mckinsey for a few years that was very prestigious and fun no disrespect to McKinsey Consultants. Um, I want to do something more prestigious and more fun, and that might be starting a company, which is the absolute worst reason to start a company. So the, one of the other things that the memo kind of talks about is just how deep has the person gone in the history of the space? Because there is that old adage of those that don't learn from history are destined to repeat it. But even worse, or like those that don't learn from history just aren't, they're just not going to be successful. Like you kind of want this naivete. Actually, this is where freshmen do very, very well. I saw that payment processing is a commodity business. I saw that it's really hard to win. I met, I mean, like the, the Stripe founders met D-Hawk. They met, I mean, they, they, uh, John Collison gave me a book, um, one of those Springer like academic textbooks on the origin story of Visa and the original, actually not even the origin story. The original like ISO codes for like how the data was transmitted. Like this is like an academic textbook. He learned everything that there was to know and yet had the, the naivete or, um, and I, I guess in Yiddish, you would call this the chutzpah, 
um, to like try it anyway, right? It's like, all right, this is really hard. And when I, when I asked um, Patrick at the time, like, hey, you know, Chase uh, Payment Tech works with everybody here. First Data works with everybody there. I knew a lot about payments, whatever this was in 2009, 2010. And um, I'll never forget what he told me. He said, my, my customers don't exist yet. And again, like that, that, that's the power of naivete of, I, ha I know everything that there is to know. I've studied the history. I've met with everybody. I just have this perpetual learning mindset and don't presume that I know everything. I go into every conversation looking to learn. Um, and yet I have the gall um, to do it anyway without necessarily having a clear model that somebody who is more experienced would say, I will not, because the best CEOs are really capital allocators. They're saying, I'm going to allocate a certain amount of capital here if you run a giant company, it's very, very hard to have a project that you build for customers that don't exist yet, right? Where you just have a hunch that they will in the future versus I'm going to hire X many salespeople. I'm going to hire this many engineers because I know that the end market is there for my customer base. So, yep. yeah, so the, the memo is basically you want um, you kind of this messianic character that can materialize labor, capital, and customers is doing it for the right reason. And the right reason is very important. Like, I think the best reason is revenge. Um, and that means many, many things. It doesn't mean you want to kill somebody, but like, you know, something happened in your history where it's like, I want to get even with those people from high school that humiliated me, or I'm Dave Duffield. Like I want to get even with Larry Ellison and Parker Conrad, Parker Conrad, another, yeah. Like all of these great revenge stories or my, my favorite one is uh Renault Laplanche who started upgrade, but he's probably better known much. I mean, he, he doesn't want to say this, um, as the founder of Lending Club. And Lending Club, when it went public, you know, it was one of the biggest IPOs in like a decade when it finally went out because it was eBay for money. It was going to be this big thing. And he gets thrown out of his own company um, very, very publicly and accused of all this wrongdoing. And um, he made a lot of money. Like he loves racing um, sailboats. Like he, he's a great um, gutsman or, or whatever the term is. Um, so he, he could have just retired into the sunset, but he was like, F that, like, I'm going to get revenge. And you could name a company that's doing something similar to your old company, many, many things, but like to name it upgrade, um, that th there's, there's a revenge element there. So, and I, I tell everybody, and this is true. Like my favorite book is the Count of Monte Cristo because it is a story of revenge. Um, but there are many, many different flavors that this can take. So it, it's kind of like, figure out, um, is this person messianic? Can they actually materialize labor capital and customers? But like, that's not enough. Like sometimes they can, but they've actually gone to pro they've, they've gone to market with the wrong product. Makes sense. Um, so that's where the history element is very important. So Alex, do they always check the box on all three or, you know, or are they stronger on one side or the other? Or the, do you, do you notice that the attributes tend to be evenly distributed across the three and are they of equal importance? I think it depends on what you're building. Um, if you're building an enterprise product and you spike really, really strong on technology, it's just like, I, I don't know, I'm sorry, but I, I don't think that normally works um, because a lot of things have to be sold and therefore you have to figure out how do you get your first five customers. And if you can't get your first five customers, like it doesn't matter. Whereas there are other like truly technological innovations where you don't have a sales bone in your body, but if you've built something 10 times better, like no matter how bad the sales team had been at like OpenAI or ChatGPT when it launched, like I'm pretty sure that that would have gone very, very well anyway. Yeah. Because yeah. it just spiked so strong. It was such a technical innovation. So I think it really depends. I mean, 
And then if you're very capital efficient early on, like you might be the worst fundraiser in history um, and the worst networker in history. But like if you print cash on day one, it doesn't matter. But there, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this. Like there are some businesses that it's like, you know, there's this old, say, old saying of like fake it till you make it. I mean, burn it till you earn it is like another one. It's just like if, if you have a very, very capital in, um, intensive business to go build something um, one time that will then kind of yield or bear fruit. You know, you're, you're planting these seeds now, but they're very expensive seeds. There's a certain type of entrepreneur that just is an amazing storyteller. And by the way, the storytelling aspect often is around those three. It's like, I'm telling a story. I, I often tell entrepreneurs, it's like, you're, you're selling all the time. You're selling investors, you're selling customers, and you're selling people to join you on your mission. And um, if you're bad at sales, like it's almost hard for me to imagine that you would be bad at sales, but good at capital raising or yeah. bad yeah. at sales, but like good at recruiting employees. Like, how is that possible? It's the same attribute. So Alex, argue with me a little bit on this because Sterling and I have had this debate a bunch between first time freshmen and second time senior founders and using your framework of capital, labor and customers the second time founder should be like strictly superior on all three than the first time founder. Yet Sterling and I find ourselves kind of saying, God, if we were forced to choose, we'd want to go with the freshman. Why, what, what do you think of that? Like, why is that the case? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do I have that argument right, Sterling? Does it, does it depend on how much revenge they still have left in their, in their yes. bones? Something like that. Yeah. I, I think um, it depends on how much revenge they have left in their bones, kind of why they're building the business. So if you're an incredibly successful senior and you have a nice, you know, Gulfstream 650 jet and you're really frustrated that the wine delivery to your jet just yeah, takes, too, takes long, too long and you're like, I should build a business for that. <laughs> like, sure, but it's for the wrong reason. It's kind of a niche market. Like you really have to say like, this is the biggest thing. I'm going to devote the rest of my life to this. In fact, I'm going to fly, I'm going to fly coach from now on. I don't even yeah. care about my GC. Like that's hard because sometimes, um, you know, th there's a term that we use internally. We call it uh, calling in rich, like the big danger <laughs> with the seniors, unless they are on a mission for revenge. And again, like Adam Newman, he's, he's out for revenge because we work like didn't work in the end. Um, and, you know, there's a whole TV series and it's, it's like, he's been ridiculed and it, he wants revenge. But that, that's why we invested in him. Like he knows that he can materialize labor capital. He knows what he's building and he's not doing it to get rich. Like he's already rich. Like he, he, he wants revenge because that's the one thing that money can't buy. So <laughs> freshmen, however, have much more variance. Like th this is what I would say. It's like there's enterprise versus consumer where, um, you know, repeat, um, consumer founders, like that normally doesn't work very well. And not because they're bad or they're calling in rich or whatever. It's just like, it's very hard. Like if you catch lightning in a bottle, um, I forgot, um, I think it actually was Kevin Systrom's, you know, Instagram founders, new, uh, news reading site. Like, yeah. like, you know, he's an amazing founder built Instagram, like billion people plus use Instagram, you know, just shut down his, his next company. Um, because again, like he's, a, he was able to materialize the labor and the capital, but you know, you, you can't go get your first five customers if you need to get a billion, right. Yeah. But like for enterprise that works well. And typically freshmen will do something that just like, doesn't make any sense to like the vast majority of the world. So like, you know, crypto, that was almost entirely freshmen because it's like, huh? Like, you know, magical money made out of what? Like that doesn't like, 
it's just harder to find somebody who, who has done something before. Because oftentimes, like we often like people that are doing something in their own space. Yeah. Right. Like if you do something, I mean, and if you ask somebody like Max Levchin about this, like the company that he did after PayPal uh, was Slide, which was yeah. a gaming company. And that's With why Raboy, up, right? Didn't Raboy join that one? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and part of the reason why he then created an incubator called HBF was it stood for hard, valuable fun. Um, because he wanted to do something that was hard, something that was valuable, something that was fun, and something that he knew well. Because like games were, oh, wait, if we build a giant game company, that's actually quite valuable. Maybe not fun for me because I don't like working on that stuff. And maybe it's not even that hard. So like hard, valuable, fun. That's uh, so anyway. So, to, but to answer your question, like freshmen, I think have much more variance. Like you're going to get your Google with the freshmen. I think you're going to get your workday with the seniors. Yeah. And you just have to have an open mind. Alex. So you mentioned this twice, uh, the first five customers, and you've got a pretty good Twitter thread on this on how to find your first five customers. We'd love to get like into some tactical nitty gritty advice and patterns that you used or that you've seen entrepreneurs use to get the first five customers. Can you talk about what you've learned there? Sure. I mean, um, most of the time, again, this is why I think the, the history element is so important. Most of the time, the, the entrepreneur came from the space that they're working in. So it's like, okay, I ran a restaurant for 15 years. It was really, really hard to hire wait staff. And here's what came up when I hired them. Um, and I also knew my four biggest restaurant, you know, quasi competitors down the street, and they all had the same problem. They all trusted me. They knew that I had a better solution. I used it internally. So I dog fooded my own. It wasn't even a company. It wasn't a problem. I just like built it on my own. So I think normally the best model, like when I built trial pay, I wasn't building a company. I just wrote shareware and people didn't buy my shareware. So I said, Hey, I'll give it to you for free. If you sign up for Netflix or shop at the gap, and then it's, Ooh, I made a lot of money. So like I was able to refine this and get it working. Um, and the reason why I often talk about like five customers as being like the, the magic number is if you get two customers, then maybe you got them from nepotism. Maybe you customize, maybe you just did like, you know, glorified professional consulting services where it's like, oh, like, hey, I want something, somebody that does X, Y, and Z. You build that, you over customize it. Because the whole point about something you often you hear it as a verb. It's like, oh, you productize that. You took something that everybody kind of did. And you made enough knobs and levers or removed enough knobs and levers where actually you can stamp out like millions or billions of widgets where everybody uses the same thing. So I, I tend to think it's like you already have an existing network um, where you can go to market so quickly. And this was an advantage that I had at, at trial pay. It's funny. I had like 10 competitors that popped out of the woodwork because it was almost too good of an idea. Like, of course, it's a good idea. And because you actually the, the best investments are it's like it looks like a bad idea, but it's actually a good idea. This one looked like a good idea and it was actually an okay idea, but, uh, <laughs> but, it, but it looked like a good idea. So we had a lot of competitors, but I had my own traffic to dog food on. Um, and by the way, this is, sorry to go on a tangent here, but this is one of the reasons why I think sometimes the sophomores don't work as well, because it's like, if you are the best top shot at Google or Facebook, you have like infinite free traffic. So you like launch a product, you learn how to build products, you learn how to ship code, you learn how to like do all these smart things that they do internally but you don't necessarily learn how to get all the customers um, because that part is just free. So at TrialPay, 
we, uh, it came out of my own business. So I already had my own traffic so I could figure out, Oh, if I lay out the products this way, I get a 5% conversion bump for like, whereas anybody else who's building a PowerPoint and trying to raise money, it's all theoretical. They don't have like this proprietary traffic, but, um, but I, I, I always find it's like either you had a business or had something and you learned from like your 10 years in the coal mines, here's a better way of extracting coal and, or, I mean, sometimes like, yeah, it's great. If your uncle like owns a coal mine, and you can get your uncle to go use your coal mine extracting widget, like nothing wrong with that. But then you don't want to have a business that's like, you know, overly dependent on one customer, not so much from a revenue perspective, because everybody knows that that's bad. But like when you're starting a company, it's like, of course, like your first customer is going to be dominate, uh, do dominate your, um, your, your P&L, but you don't want it to dominate the shape of your product in a way that completely diverges from what the rest, the rest of the market wants. And that's why I like this kind of, it's like, if you draw a pentagon, and you put like a little dot in the middle, it's like each, each one of the, the edges is kind of pulling away, right? It's like, and hopefully that center location stays the same as you build your business. Because what would suck is if like your first five customers are completely, not only not help, but they're like counter indicative of where the rest of the market actually wants your product to go. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I, I, Tyler and I talk a lot too about how these these really good entrepreneurs they usually like sell, then design, then build. They typically like go out and yeah, it's it's I own a restaurant, so I and I, I use this thing for me, and then I know these four others. And before there's like a real heavy engineering or technical lift, a lot of the times it seems like they go out and, and almost like validate product market fit in some ways before dedicating a ton of time and money to it. I'm curious if you agree with that, Alex, and obviously it doesn't apply to, to things like consumer and it doesn't apply to all kinds of technology, but I'm curious if directionally you think, uh, you think that's a good way to think about your first five or 10 customers. A hundred percent. I mean, I think it's a, it's a careful skill because, um, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, like, again, going back to this framing of like, fake it till you make it. Like if you go too far in that direction, well, then that's, you're going to be committing securities fraud and going to jail. Um, where it's like, oh, here, like I, I'm faking my financials because I haven't made it yet. Like, no, no, like that's outright fraud. I think a lot of times, actually, some of the best entrepreneurs, they kind of, they know what is possible. And I, I remember like, this was one of the things that I would do a lot of, which is, Number one, you have to like, you know, somewhat say what the customer wants to hear. Because if you go pitch a customer and they're like, how many other clients are using it? You're like, oh, zero, you'd be my first one. And I'm probably going out of business next month. So like, what do you say? Put, give me, give me your hand. Let's, let's have a handshake. It's like, no, that's not going to work. But if you actually understand like what's possible within product design and engineering, if somebody says like, hey, do you have this feature? Um, you could say, no, I don't have that feature. I don't know how hard that would be to build. I'll probably never build it, but you know, again, this is kind of prevaricating with time as a, as a variable. It's like, okay, uh, do I have this feature? Yep. I've totally got that feature. You'll see it tomorrow morning in your inbox. And then you pull an all nighter and then lo and behold, you have that feature. So I, I think that actually is a, is a mainstream attribute of, um, of a lot of entrepreneurs, because it's like, if you tell people exactly what exists right now, um, I, I have a, a personal blog that I used to update more often, but, um, I found this video of, of Tiger Woods when he was two and a half years old. Um, and he hits a perfectly straight drive, which is much better than one of mine. <laughs> and I, this is on the Ed Sullivan show. And there are two ways of looking at this video. You could look at it as like, wow, if that kid keeps playing more golf, like he could win 14 majors by the time he's whatever, 35, and he'll be the greatest golfer of all time. 
or maybe after Jack Nicholas. Um, or you could say that kid sucks. I'm better at golf than he is. <laughs> right. And both of those are correct. What I find from like a lot of people who are like really in their job at like large, large corporations uh, is they have that second viewpoint. Right. It's like, oh, well, like I can't use that product because it only goes 25 yards. Right. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, like if you yeah. watch the curve of where it goes. So this goes back to, I think a lot of the entrepreneurs, they have to kind of pitch where it's going and incorporate feedback from the customers and then deliver that very, very quickly. Uh, because you can't just say like, oh, like, you know, use me. And then in 25 years, like my product will be like doable. It's like, oh, yes, of course we do that. And then boom, like scurry, type on the keyboard. And then before they even see the code, it totally works to their specification. This is, I just, just for everybody paying attention to this is a huge point because the first part's actually really easy. And usually the founder's pretty good at, especially if they're not technical. And so you're, you're pitching this vision, but with excellent startups, there seems to be a piece of feedback that comes from the customers. And it's something to the effect of, wow, that was fast. You're the best partner I've ever had. Those types of things start to come because of how quickly you are, you are doing what you said you would do. And that builds a lot of, a lot of equity and trust in the things you say you'll do next. Right. Well, especially because you have this giant, I mean, like, remember how like Popeye has two, like he's got the strong, like when he eats the spinach, like one arm gets like really big. The other one kind of never gets big. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, quirk of the uh, the cartoon. So you have this giant weakness as a startup, which is like you have no cash and you'll probably be dead in a year. Um, and if everybody was smart enough to ask for your financial statements, like no, nobody would sign up to use your product, at least in the enterprise world. Um, but exactly as you say, like you, you earn a lot of goodwill by being like the best partner ever. Um, and that's why like, I, I just want to like make clear, like I'm not suggesting that it's a good idea to mislead your customers. Right. It's like, oh yeah, of course we do that. And then it's like vaporware and it's bullshit. No, it's like you take the feedback. You have to realize that a lot of them kind of see things as they are today. So because, you know, when I was at Visa, um, I just kind of, actually, this, this, it was a very valuable lesson for me because most people there, they were just used to like things taking years. So that's why whenever they saw a two and a half year old Tiger Woods, they were like, that kid sucks at golf, Right. Because it's just, it's hard to extrapolate like the rate of improvement at a very, very small startup versus like a, a giant monopoly where like people are smart, but like they just don't move as quickly. So if you say, oh yeah, like we don't have this feature right now, but we can get it done in like three weeks. And you're like, three weeks, like no way we would take four years to do that. So they just don't have a basis for comparison. Alex, this reminds me of one of the quotes that I kind of first started to learn from you several years ago, and many people will probably recognize this. Competition between an incumbent and a software startup is a race where the startup is trying to get to distribution before the incumbent gets to innovation. Uh, did you, like, I love the framework. I agree with it. I've actually lived it and seen it in every startup I've been a part of. Uh, talk to us about that insight, and then maybe more specifically, how do startups get to distribution before the incumbent gets to innovation? What, what patterns do you see there? It's very hard. I mean, I, I learned this the hard way. And, um, you know, for those that are interested, I, I wrote an essay. I called it the TiVo problem um, when I first joined this firm in, in 2015. Um, I mean, I learned it the hard way because I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs, they'll say like, ooh, like, you know, this thing is bad. I'll make it better. Like, oh, Tesla has this problem. I'll 
build a little hack that fixes it. Or Microsoft Outlook is slow. I'll build a little hack that fixes it. I'll build this giant business. No, like, because those guys own the customers, they'll event. If, if it turns out to be a really good idea, they'll just roll it out. But the reason why I called it the TiVo problem is TiVo built uh, potentially one of the, TiVo and Replay TV were two companies. They built one of the greatest innovations in the history of, of media, which was the ability to pause live television because television was always linear. And then in 1998, both of these companies popped up around the same time. And this is where the digital video recorder came out. Um, but both of those companies effectively died. Um, I mean, TiVo turned into like a patent troll and they're, they're effectively dead as, as, a, as a going like innovating concern because who controls the content that you want to pause? It's like Time Warner Cable and Comcast and DirecTV and you know, your, your cable company or your satellite provider back, back when I cut the cords. So, but but back, back before that <laughs> happened, like people watch TV all the time. So I kind of like, there are only like a few options that are successful. Either you sell your company, because eventually if, if you start a company and raise venture capital, like you want to provide liquidity for your shareholders and, and employees uh, and yourself uh, if you're the founder. So you either sell the Comcast, but it's like, that's kind of weird because like then Comcast is going to say, wait a minute, like Time Warner Cable doesn't want to be dependent on Comcast. So you actually have this weird quirk where you would have a control discount. Normally, if you buy a company, like if you go buy a company that's publicly traded today, you're buying it at a control premium because you're buying all the shares. You're going to pay more than the price of one share. Whereas like somebody like Tivo only had like six, not customers, they had lots and they had millions of customers, but like it was always behind this box of the cable box that was provided by six companies. So you either sell to one of those six and then you lose the other five. One of those six copies you. Um, you license your software to one of the six, but because one of the six knows that they can either buy you or copy you, they're going to pay you almost nothing. It's just like the, the, the outcomes are not good. And I, I kind of had this realization around like 2011 or 2012, because it's like everybody, I wanted to, I, I knew about that opportunity. Like I know that Comcast sucks, right? But I don't want to build Comcast. I just want to build this widget that pauses live TV. But my realization was that like, to kind of follow my metaphor here, if I want to build, uh, you know, Replay TV or um, or TiVo, I shouldn't actually build that product. I should build that product, but I should first build the stupid cable company, which sounds like a terrible idea, but then and only then will I control my destiny. So that's kind of how I came to this realization was, was like, wow, like distribution is actually more valuable than product because as long as you have a great product organization or even a competent product organization, if you control the distribution, then it's like, eat your heart out. Like, hey, engineers, like, why don't we build this thing today? Why don't we build that thing today? Um, and, and consequently, it's like, that is the challenge for every startup. It's like, you know, how do you figure out how to get distribution before these old incumbents kind of figure out what's going on? And you got to figure out a way to do it. You, you, I mean, there are many ways of doing this. Like, okay, maybe there's a, there's a bubble in the market. You can raise like infinite equity dollars and then just go like buy lots of billboards and outspend all of your competitors. But that's, that's, a, that's a fraught with peril idea. You could do other distribution models, like at a firm, we did B2B to C. Um, so how did a firm get millions and millions of customers? Like it didn't pay any money to get those customers by buying Google ads and Facebook ads um, in the way that Lending Club might have, or you know, some other company in the financial services sector would acquire customers. You know, hey, uh, th this is the original idea behind a firm. It's like, how do we have negative cap? Like we're actually, we're signing up a merchant and then we're making money from that merchant to acquire their downstream customers. So like that was a hack or, you know, you just come up with some like, you know, obviously like virality or customer feedback is the best. I mean, like, you know, how many things actually have like 
truly high NPS, um, you know, net promoter score, like my view, especially as an investor, is that the vast majority of things that claim to have very high NPS, it's all bullshit. It's all sampling bias because, you know, a net promoter score is like on, on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to recommend this to a friend? And I can't tell you how many times we have somebody come in and then, you, you know, you, you basically reduce the neutrals where like the six and sevens or sevens and eights. So you look at the promoters, the nines and tens, and you subtract out the detractors. Um, and then you get a score. So the number of people that come in is like, oh, I have an 87 NPS, which is like higher than Apple. And then you ask like, how many customers come to your site organically? And the answer is zero. It's like, well, the whole question is like on a scale <laughs> of one, it's like, so no. But, you know, Uber was entirely organic, right? Like there, there was no incumbent for Uber, um, but the product was 10 times better and one-tenth the cost. So that's the easiest, but like that doesn't work for most companies. So yeah. if you have a high enough product, you hire a Salesforce, at least you own that. You're not relying on Google and Facebook, but like, I think in general, like B2B to C, I like a lot, um, exploiting like, you know, weird parts of the world. We're like waiting for a new platform to develop where if you did anything around the iPhone app store in 2008, 2009, like you were getting distribution before any incumbent was innovating just because it wasn't overcompeted yet. And the same thing was true for the PC in like the early 1980s and even like 1990s. It's like you have these different windows. And if you're not in one of the windows where like a new platform develops, then it's like, yeah, it is really, really hard. And I don't have a solution for it, except you should be, it should be part of your like, are we screwed if we launch this business, uh, even if it works? Like th there's this kind of example of, I, I sometimes use this internally of like, hey, even if this works, it doesn't work, Right. There are a lot of businesses that unfortunately look like this, where it's like, even if this e-commerce site that's like buying ads on Instagram and shipping you something that was made in China from some Chinese OEM, like even if that works, it doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is just like the, the, the you know, Econ 101 doesn't lie. Like it's just, if you're making too much profit and there are too many people that compete with you, which is what's going to happen if you make too much profit, then the, the Facebook ads just go up in price. And then the Chinese, you know, manufacturer charges you more like it's just, you don't own anything. So it's hard. So if I distill it, Alex, I'm curious if you'll agree with this. I'm hearing like three things. The first is just recognize that distribution trumps product and don't be, don't be under a mirage that if you just build a widget that you'll win. The second I think think you're saying is maybe it's better to not build the widget, it's to build the actual Comcast yep. rather than the TiVo yep. and start there so you, and the reason for that is so that you own the customer. Totally. And the third thing I'm hearing is you might have to find a certain hack or a distribution, yeah, hack, I, I know hack's not the perfect word, but a specific new platform that you can move quicker on or another way of distributing B2B to C that allows you to, to get to distribution faster. Is that totally. a fair and, summary? And I think for the first one, it's like the summary of my, my little blog post was go boring. Like Comcast is as boring as possible. I mean, Comcast is almost a bad example because it's like who has $100 billion of CapEx or whatever it would cost to like build all the cable lines across the country. It's a bad example. <laughs> it's a bad example. But there are other examples like, you know, Stripe built a commodity product. Um, but it's a highly retentive product. It's a very boring product, right? Like that's why I didn't do it. Like I, I knew how to do that. I didn't want to do it because it's so boring. It's like everybody already has payment processing. And again, that's where I wasn't naive enough um, in a good way where Patrick and John were, where they're like, well, our customers don't exist yet. And I was like, wow, it's going to be so hard for me to steal Walmart from, you know, first data. 
I'm not going to try that. I'm, but what I can do is I can get Walmart to go sign up for my little widget that I just produced. And in retrospect, I should have built the boring thing first. And the boring thing there wouldn't have had high CapEx. And in fact, my widget makes, because the boring thing often has just not a huge amount of profitability, like kind of boring things almost by definition. They're boring because they've been produced by so long. If they've been produced for so long, they probably have shitty margins. If they have shitty margins, then they don't actually attract a huge number of new entrants. But if you enter as a new entrant and you accept the shitty margin, in fact, your margin is going to be worse because you're doing it initially subscale, but you have a secret at the end because you have a higher LTV product that you're going to roll it on top, right? Then it works. So you, you build the boring thing, like you build the Comcast and you realize that you're just going to be able to charge the market rate for that. But then you invent TiVo and everybody's like, holy shit, this thing's amazing. And then you could charge a lot more for that. So I, I think that's often the best pattern if you can figure out a way to pull that off. Cool. Yeah. Alex, uh, I, we, we wanted to ask you about the best pitch you ever sat in and what made it the best. Oh, wow. There were so many different definitions of this. I mean, like the, the best pitch was probably like this product is unbelievable because it's, it's hard to compete with that because you, you have like, you have different types of pitches. You have pitches where it's like the numbers are unbelievable. So I have, I've had many of those where it's like, oh my God, this company went from like zero to a hundred million dollars in revenue in like four months. Like imagine being in like the open AI pitch, you know, open yeah. AI went from like zero to like billions of dollars of revenue. It's like, is that, how is that not going to be the best pitch you've ever seen? Even if yeah. it's like they were, they were making, you know, whatever fiber optic cable or something very, very boring because it's like, this is an amazing pitch. Uh, there's the amazing pitch because the product is so cool, which would also be like, I mean, a, a number of these AI companies where it's like, wow, this thing is amazing. I didn't even think that like humans could create a thing that did that. Um, and then the third, which is maybe the most interesting because it's the most, um, um, most useful maybe for this audience is like, you know, it, you can't always be born into having the best business in the world that goes zero to a billion in like a week. Like that's a great pitch. You can't necessarily have the greatest technical innovation in the history of mankind. Like that, that only happens once per mankind, um, you know, epoch, but you can be an incredible pitchman. Um, and I've seen a lot that are like that where, you know, just like an incredible, I mean, like, you know, listening to Adam Newman pitch, like that, that guy is just so compelling. Um, you know, even knowing everything that went wrong at WeWork, um, like he's, he's an incredibly artful salesperson. Um, and I mean that in a really positive way. And it's like, you could see why, I mean, that, that's often why we apply the framework around like labor capital customers to ourselves. Like we are the capital. Um, is there going to be a round N plus one for round N? And um, part of that is just like, you know, it sounds like a lemming-like thing to say, but how good is this person at just convincing a, a crowd? And you probably see this with, you know, an, an amazing politician as well, or an amazing CEO of a giant company. Just some people like you, I, I heard Colin Powell speak one time. I was like, wow, it's like, that guy's amazing. Like you'll meet people like that. And that's a distinct type of pitch. I, I don't remember a particular, I mean, he, he was very good. So I'll, I'll put him in that category. Um, but I, I've met a few where it's just like, wow, they are just, they really connect with their audience, um, and just speak with such authority. And again, how does that matter? I'm not voting for this person for, you know, president, senator, congressman or whatever, but I feel like, uh, again, recursively, there is a very, very high chance that if he or she meets 10 other investors, they're all going to be captivated and want to invest just like a great storyteller. So, um, and that, that's actually quite rare. I mean, like a lot of people, it's just like, you know, low, 
I, I, I empathize with every, every walk of entrepreneur, but sometimes it's kind of low energy, like don't make eye contact, just like no, yeah. no change of the intonation of the voice. It's just like basic things. Like if you kind of inject the greatest public speaker in the world into like entrepreneurship, like that actually is an edge. And it's like, how is that an edge? But it's like, yeah, but you're going to be able to convince customers and employees and investors to go invest in you. So it doesn't happen as often as you would think. As the kids say, the Riz. You gotta, riz. you gotta yes. have the Riz. Yes. Yeah, Alex, it's, it's, uh, it's, I, quite important. it's quite important. I got one other advice question for you, and then Sterling and I probably have some wrap-up questions as we get close to the end of the convo here. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum of the company building process. So we talked about finding the first five customers. You've probably got some opinions at the end of a company's life on how to sell a business. And there's probably founders out there that are in this situation now where either things are going great and they want to sell or maybe things aren't going as great and they're looking for an exit at a time where exits are kind of tough to come by. What kind of actionable, actionable advice would you give to founders who might be in that situation who are thinking of maybe selling? Yeah, I mean, um, I have a lot of thoughts on this and I, I got very good at it out of necessity. I feel like my, my, my skill in that sector has been, has been wasting away for years because um, I just don't have a way to really use that anymore. So I'm excited to talk about this. So I would say a couple of things like normally, well, number one, like just the, the governing rule is that companies are bought, they're not sold. So I remember at one point in time, my investors who meant well um, were like, hey, you know, Alex, maybe we should sell the business because we, we got some inbound from some company that wanted to buy us. Let's go hire a banker. And I'm like, you know, 26 year old. I was like, okay, that sounds great. It was such a horrible idea um, because, yeah, we had somebody who was kind of interested. And then, like, you know, if you're talking about like being able to convince labor and capital and employees, everything that we just talked about, it's like somebody, some dude that works at Morgan Stanley that like, you know, might be really hardworking and good at PowerPoint that doesn't know what my business does. Like they're going to call people that run corp dev at other big businesses who are like, I don't want that. Like, it's just, it doesn't work. Um, so rule number one is companies are bought, they're not sold. Um, and then if that is the, if that's kind of like the, the rule, and I, I believe it is a sacrosanct rule. I mean, the only case where it's not is like, okay, you're WhatsApp, you're a worldwide monopoly on like messaging. Well, of course, everybody wants to buy that. If you say, hey, I want to sell my company, it's like, you know, everybody wanted to buy that whenever Facebook bought. So there are exceptions, but like for most businesses, they're bought, they're not sold. Um, normally when you want to sell, it means you're kind of, can I use bad language here? Uh, it means yeah. you're fucked. Like that's when like every entrepreneur is like, hey, I want to sell my business because I'm fucked. And I'm like, okay, well, that's good to know because nobody's going to want to buy a fucked company. Um, so rarely, and then companies are bought just like in a random ass way. It's just like, you know, somebody decides I need this thing. They've spent five years with this CEO, like a lot of acquisitions. I'm sure you see it. It's like, that makes no sense. I'm scratching my head, but it actually always makes sense to me. Um, it's this quote from like Anna Karenina, every happy family is the same, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. It's like every acquisition <laughs> is a little bit different. Um, but they like whenever you see like this giant company buys a company with no revenue for two billion dollars, like there's always been a pre-existing relation, almost always been a pre-existing relationship between like the CEO and the seller, and maybe like there's all sorts of other things that are going on there. But if you're fucked, there, there's kind of like this broader like thread on this. A lot of times companies will try to like, oh, let me spin up this other product, let me do this other thing. And I have a lot of thoughts on that because like that often goes wrong because now you have 15 products and like they're all kind of sort of working and you can't shut them down. So I have a lot like, you know, whenever you launch a product to kind of like unscrew yourself in a bad situation, you should always have, in my opinion, what I would call like a, 
a shutdown plan. Like, hey, we're launching this new product. We're really excited about it. And here's how we're going to kill it in 35 days. Because what often happens is the company, like Trial Pay, we were fucked. And we started coming up with these other products to undo that problem. And then we would sell them to our current customers. And then we want to shut them down because it's like, oh, that product isn't going to work very well. It's not going to scale. But then we'd piss off our current customers. So it's like, there are a lot of things that you need to do if you're in this like bad position as a company. But basically what you need to do if you need to sell your business is, and you're, you're screwed, is you have to have a cost structure that makes sense. And this is the thing that I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't care. It's like, oh, if, if, I, if I cut 50 people or if I cut all these engineers, like nobody's going to want my business because it looks bad and get all this bad press. No, they just don't want to have, like, especially in today's environment, they don't want to have a business that's burning like $50 million a year. Like that's, that's a very, very hard acquisition target to make happen. Um, and the other thing to do, like, this is what I spent a lot of time on is, um, you know, how do I just spend, how do I get to know the three or four acquirers that might buy my company and not go up to them and say like, Hey, I'm selling, do you want to buy? But like, all right, let me meet, like, let's make sure that I spend enough time with them, that they know what we do, that they know what we could do. Like, you know, two and a half year old Tiger Woods, right? It's like, this is what this could be for you in 20 years. Um, try to get a test in place where it's like, if there's a real synergistic opportunity here and they're not just like buying the company for talent, which we, we obviously didn't want. I mean, we thought we had talent, but like, you don't get paid for that. Um, let's show that this is transformative and find the person that actually cares about that. And that person is almost never the corp dev person who's in charge of like actually doing deals. It's the person who's like the PNL owner or like the GM or something get that person excited about this, do a test. And then I found that fear and not opportunity actually runs the day in terms of successful outsized processes. Because if you say, hey, you're gonna make a lot of money um, and you're a cog in a giant, giant machine and you're not gonna make money personally, it's your machine is gonna make money and you're gonna have to stay until five o'clock and not go home at four o'clock. That's not a very compelling pitch. Um, but if you could show that the numbers are working well, and then it's like, hey, you guys might be very, very embarrassed because your biggest competitor might buy the business. Like that's the best potential scenario, but it just takes so much, I call it choreography. Like to, to come up and manifest this kind of outcome is extraordinarily difficult because you kind of need all of the companies that you think might actually buy what you create to have a pre-existing relationship with you, know you, know your product, um, hopefully fear each other and then get some kind of proof point that this is actually highly synergistic and get one of them to move. And then, then you can kind of kick something off. And that, that's, that's basically what we did. It was very, very hard. Um, but you know, it's hard to choreograph, but again, it just takes, it takes years of pre-planning is what I would say. Super helpful. Sterling and I call it like hanging around the hoop and eventually you yeah. get a rebound basically. All right. Before we go to hoops things. Yeah, a lot of hoops. <laughs> Not before we go to the wrap-up, Sterling, any questions you think we've missed on? I want to make sure we get them all before we wrap up. It's been it's been awesome. I, I think we've double clicked on the right stuff and the, the content's been fasting. So I think I think we get to the we get to the last stuff here. Okay, cool. cool. So I'll ask the first one. There's three of them and they're pretty quick. Alex, who's the operator, whether that's a founder or executive, that you admire most? And if you can't pick one, if you can't pick the one you admire most, just we'll settle one. for one you admire a lot. Um, so honestly, it's a guy that most people wouldn't know, but it's somebody that I sold one of my businesses to. His name is Stephen Bull. He started a company called coupons.com um, and started doing coupons on the internet in like 1998. Internet basically died. He stuck with this for like 20 years and um, just never gave up. Eventually took the company public. And he was just such a, 
he, he was such a swift leader. Like, it's like if something needed to be done, like, boom, he wouldn't think twice. He would do it that day. Um, and I just really admired his persistence and, you know, ability to make hard decisions extraordinarily quickly. That's awesome. awesome. And, uh, and for the second one, it's, it's the same question, but on the investor side, who's the investor that you most admire or one that you admire a lot? And uh, we maybe should say it can't be anyone at Andreessen. Oh man, that's then. Uh, then I don't have to get in trouble, but I don't know what to say. Like this, this is a fun <laughs> bad. I mean, there are there are a ton. I mean, it's it's hard. Uh, the the goat is probably Mike Moritz, just based on track record. I mean, I, I've met him a couple times, don't know him that well, um, but uh, it's kind of hard to argue with with Google and a and a few other hits. But uh, it's we were actually talking about this the other day internally because it's like okay, let's just say we want to hire somebody from the outside and like the last five years have been rough five years. Like, were you a good, you have to separate process from outcome. And that's what yeah. makes figuring out who's a good investor really tough. Because if you had the absolute right process, it always had the wrong outcome because you were in the worst environment of all time versus you had the worst process and the best outcomes because you were in the best environment of all time. It's like, I don't know. Yeah, makes sense. All right, the third one, Alex, is we call it the golden spur question. But another way of just saying it is, what is it that drives you? Why are you the way that you are? Are you on a revenge tour too? Or, or what is it that drives you? Um, you know, it's a great question. Somebody asked me this the other day after I gave them my whole pitch on revenge. and like, well, what are you seeking revenge for? I was like, that's a good question. Um, I, don't, I, I, love, um, I love coaching. Like, I kind of feel like uh, I, I, was a, I was an athlete in college. Um, they got injured. And like, I actually found the coaching more fun than the playing. So for me, like I was just ran into an entrepreneur like on the street in San Francisco before I came here. And it's like, uh, it's a guy in my portfolio. It's just like, we spent 45 minutes like brainstorming how to deal with the problem. Um, so I, I just really get a lot of like energy out of that. It just really energizes me to like, every day I'll see 10 different problem situations. And like, there are a lot of distinctions between all of them. They're all different companies, but there are a lot of commonalities and it's kind of fun. Because I think that the, the dig on venture capital is that it's completely zero sum. This is what one of my friends who says he will never go into venture capital. Uh, tell me, uh, there are only 10 good deals per decade. And like somebody's going to do one of those 10 good deals. And like, you're just basically shuffling around which firm does one of those 10 deals. And I was like, wow, that's really depressing. But actually, like when you're in this, like, it's like, well, you know, that's like saying like only one team is going to win the Super Bowl every year. So you might as well not play football. It's like the game itself is fun. So for me, the, the coaching and then seeing some of these people albeit from afar, uh, succeed and overcome obstacles. I, I, I get a, a huge amount of energy out of that. Love That's it. awesome. Well, uh, thank you for being so, so generous with your time. We've uh, appreciated it and the listeners will too. So Tyler, what were, what were your like initial takeaways from the conversation with Alex? Obviously a brilliant guy who's seen a lot, done a lot. His, his knowledge comes across as very practical. Um, and he's, he spent a lot of time thinking, but also doing, but yeah. what, what were your top takeaways? So I obviously loved his story. The career story was super interesting. I'm a, you know, a firm's incredible, but where I think he actually like the most valuable parts is some of this advice that he gave. So my favorite thing is this framework of capital, labor, and customers. And the definition of an entrepreneur is someone who can wrangle all three of those together yeah. and, and organize them. I just think it's a very simple framework, and I love how it, it led to some very fun conversations. That was probably my, 
my favorite part. What do you think? I, I mean, the whole thing was, was incredible. The couple things that stick out are the analogies around uh, freshmen and what their strengths are from a, yep. from a founding standpoint, seniors, and then, and then everybody in between. There's, there's a power in that naivete and just relentlessness, but then there's also something to be said for people who have seen it, done it, and want to do it bigger and better, but with more more resources, more knowledge. I, I thought that, that those were those were a couple of things that I really loved. Agree. One other I'd add is I hope the advice he gives around maximizing the chance that you have a successful acquisition of your company was helpful for folks, although it's it's hard to be actionable on it if you haven't already started planting those seeds. I think some founders should get a lot of value out of that, and I liked his thoughts there. Um, but what else, Sterling? We get it all? Oh, I mean, it was, it was an episode full of, of really, really good insights. Things about distribution versus innovation. Things about, you know, like how, how to think about go-to-market versus product. And, and uh, there's a lot of beautiful software that just sits on the shelf. Stuff, yeah. stuff like that, he was, he was incredibly knowledgeable around. But I think people are going to, I think, I, I, I loved that conversation. Um, and I think, I think everyone's going to enjoy that. Totally agree.